again to John 6. It's a long passage, and there's a lot to it. So, hear the word of the Lord, starting in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. John here is just kind of catching us up on what's been happening. Jesus just fed the multitude with five loaves and a couple fish, right? Multiplied it and then walked across the sea. And so he picks back up. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say now... I have come down from heaven. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. For whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood 
is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and we love these words that you've given us. We pray for your spirit to come and teach us now that you would feed us with yourself. Lord Jesus, that you, by your spirit, would instruct us, even as uh, I speak, that you would use my words to pierce our hearts, to heal us, and to give us your life. Lord, uh, we confess these things are a mystery to us, and yet we pray that you would do them and give us faith to receive them. In Jesus' name, amen. This is one of those passages uh, which is just expansive. It's deep. It's rich. Uh, There's quite a bit here. In fact, uh, next week we'll cover the same passage, and we'll just think about Jesus' teaching on election. He has quite a bit here. Uh, The other problem with this passage is that I love it. So it's kind of hard to figure out what to talk about, uh, but I did my best to uh, hone it in. Uh, I'll just tell you a little story. Uh, my junior year of high school, I was uh, very depressed, uh, very, very depressed, very dark. Uh, the summer before that, I'd worked at a Bible camp, kind of like Furwood here, uh, and was totally transformed. Uh, I came to know the gospel in a new way. Uh, I, came, I remember reading Romans 8, 1 through 4, and it clicking for the first time. Everything made sense. And the Lord really got a hold of me. I was really transformed and uh, really came to the love of the Lord. But in the middle of that summer, I came home from my vacation, uh, my week off, and I found out my parents had divorced, um, which was a surprise. Uh, They had separated once before and then reconciled and got back together, and then all of a sudden I came home and they were divorced. So I came back and finished up the summer and came home thinking, okay, I know there's a mess. Well, I did come home to a total mess, a whole world of hurt and uh, broken relationships, Not to mention just the plain old confusion of being a 16-year-old boy, right? It's difficult. Um, Not to mention uh, my own struggles with sexual sin and pornography. I thought maybe those things had disappeared over the summer because I'd grown so much. So I came home to quite a mess. Very hard year. All that was bad, and then my girlfriend dumped me. So (laughs) it's just really the nail in the coffin there. That was the beginning of a very uh, dark and lonely period for me, for about two or three years. Uh, it was really a tremendously terrible time, uh, very lonely, and I often contemplated taking my own life uh, in a serious way. Uh, often uh, contemplated that because I felt like uh, the Lord had left me. Uh, where is he, after all? I think I probably would have walked away from the Lord or taken my own life had it not been for a few things. Uh, first, a couple older guys who knew me and had been at the camp came and really surrounded me. Uh, that year, they met with me every week. They prayed for me. They corrected me. They encouraged me. Uh, they also confessed their own sins to me, which helped me to feel like, okay, I can do this too. I can confess my sins and be encouraged and I've been forgiven. The other thing is, uh, I made sure I was in church every week. I mean, it's like kind of simple, but I really felt like I would wither, uh, like I would fall apart if I just wasn't with the Lord's people and hearing his word. And the other thing, the third thing was that that summer I was finally taught how to read the Bible and do it every day. 
and I was encouraged and expected to do it every day. And so when I came home, I kept up this routine, uh, which uh, actually turned into much more than a routine. Uh, that time in the scripture and worship and with my brothers became my lifeblood. I wanted the life of Christ desperately, in fact, but I felt very stuck in my sin. Uh, and I felt that Jesus is very distant from my misery. And so uh, as much as I was full of doubt, I really even more began to long for Christ to be with me. But I remember coming to this passage in my scripture reading routine and being totally captivated. Uh, I want what Jesus is describing. I want Jesus to fill me, to give me his life. I want my soul to abide in him. I want to draw my whole life from him. I wanted to lay hold of Christ and have his person fill me because here Christ offered himself to my soul. Right? Here in this passage, he offers himself as our life, our hope, our sustenance, even promise of a future. And in fact, if you read this passage and that's what's happening to you as you read it, congratulations. That's what it's meant to do. It's meant to draw your desires to long to be with Christ. Of course, the other side is that this passage uh, is also fairly confusing, and we can't help but think of the Lord's Supper as we read this passage. Right? Maybe you were thinking of it last week uh, when John tells us that uh, Jesus took the bread and after giving thanks, distributed it to those around him, and so also the, the fish. Right? It's not perfect. Uh, we don't have fish on our table here. <clears throat> but maybe the Passover references convinced you. Or maybe verse 54, where Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And in fact, that word feed is much more than feed. It's actually chew on, munch, gnaw. Whoever munches on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So, you would be right to think of the Lord's Supper as you read this passage. But, here's the deal. Most commentators rightly point out that Jesus is actually not describing the Lord's Supper here. He's actually not teaching about the Lord's Supper. It would actually be kind of weird for him to be in a synagogue full of Jews who had never seen the Lord's Supper and for him to tell them, hey, listen, I'm going to instruct you on a Christian ritual that's going to happen in the church that's going to split off from you. They have no idea. So what is he doing here? What's Jesus up to? If he's not talking about the Lord's Supper particularly, then what on earth could he mean by feeding and chewing on his flesh? So, I want to talk about those things today in two movements. First, Jesus is our life. Jesus himself is our life. And second, chewing on the bread of life in the Lord's Supper. How we do that? So, Jesus is our life, and then chewing on the bread of life. So, first, Jesus is our life. To get at this, I want to look at uh, Jesus' interaction with the crowd early on. They come to him, and it seems like uh, their vision for the good life, right, uh, for what this Messiah could do for them, uh, didn't go far beyond their bellies, right? And the bellies is kind of an example. It exemplifies the desires being met. So Jesus greets this crowd, whom he fed, with a rebuke and an invitation. Jesus, he just, he doesn't know how to make friends and influence people, he, you know. Verse 26, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, you didn't understand them, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. That's the rebuke. But of course, he's much kinder than that because he also has an invitation. Let me tell you what you should do. 
don't work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that endures or abides to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Their vision for the good life was getting everything they wanted, having their desires met, having their dream life fulfilled. And it kind of makes sense, because if you remember that they were actually functionally slaves under the Roman powers, they saw Jesus as an opportunity to get their independence, right? Now we can have the freedom to farm our fields and not worry about the taxes. We, we can have the life if this guy can boot the Romans out. Jesus seemed to not only be able to kick the Romans out, but multiply bread. Not a bad guy to have around. I'd vote for him, sure. But on top of that, they also are confused because they think uh, that if they do the right stuff, if they get their stuff in line, then God will kind of add in all the other blessings, right? Look at verse 28. They say to him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What, what do we have? What's God require of us? We can have a happy life if we add in these things that God requires of us, these works, and make God happy and add a little Jesus into our life too. Sure, I can fit that in my schedule. Well, Jesus actually uh, goes on to show that they're missing two things, two very big things. One, uh, that they have totally underestimated the deadliness of their sin. The deadliness of their sin. That they are dead apart from him. And second, that life in Christ cannot be an add-on. It's not something you tie on to your schedule. And in fact, it's a total replacement. So Jesus himself is our life and does not simply add benefits to us. Uh, so look at verse 49 and 50. Jesus says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. Jesus tells us that if we don't receive his life, we are dead. And we're dead because of our sin. That's how seriously Jesus estimates your sin. And by sin, let me just be clear, what I mean by sin is all that that's in us that actually does not want, does not love what's good and right. All that's in us that actually loves and delights in evil. All that's in us that wants to distort the truth about ourselves to lessen our consequences or to emphasize the wrongs of others and demand justice happen to them. I mean that these things, all of these little instances are not freak occurrences. They're not like stubbing your toe or forgetting what was on the grocery list. No. Jesus means to to tell us that these evil things happen in our lives because sin, evil, actually lives in us. And so everything we do, everything we feel, everything we think and touch will be colored, flavored, infected by the evil that's in us. Jesus says the, that if the only thing you do is maintain your bodily life, maintain your dream of the good life. Get the comforts you want. Feed the belly. Keep your life going. Pursue your ambitions. You will never have this central evil healed. It won't touch it. Look at verse 49 again. He says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Jesus says, that you can even be around the things of God 
and even benefit from his works, like eating the manna or being at the crowd and eating the bread and the fish and yet not have the life of God in you. You can be around the things of God and yet not actually have his life in you. You actually have to have a new principle of life put in you from the outside. You have to exchange your old life on its way to the grave for Jesus' life. And this is what Jesus gets at in verse 51. Look with me. He doesn't beat around the bush. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What he means is his crucifixion. That he gave his flesh for the life of the world when he gave himself over to be crucified in our place. When he was whipped and beaten and killed and crucified, he took our evil on himself. The living one died our death. He died our death so that we could have his life. That's what he means by exchanging lives. He says, in fact, you need to give up your death, and I can take it, and I would give you my life. And in fact, it's much more intimate than that because he says having his life, receiving his life, is having a share in his flesh and blood, the very material of his life. And once you've received this new principle, your sins are forgiven, and that old principle of death is pushed out, and he fills you and nourishes you with himself. And so Christ has the very life of the Father in him, the very fountain of life, and he gives that to us, even as we exchange it for our death. So let me just say, if you're here this morning and, and you don't know the Lord, what Jesus teaches us is that the way you have life beyond death, the way that you have life even here and now in the body, is not by figuring out what things God requires of you and doing them and getting your life in line and cleaning yourself up. Not at all. No, Jesus takes our need much more seriously than that. He says that you are required to believe in him. And by believe in him, he means that you trust him, that you put your life into his hands, that you ask that he would give you himself. You could say it out loud. It's as simple and mysterious as that. And as you receive him, as you lay hold of him, in fact, he lays hold of you and begins to impart himself to you. You see, our sin is so pervasive and so deadly that you can't just add a little Jesus on top like some salt and pepper and kind of cover the rottenness of our life. You need a whole new dish. You need a whole new life. And the delight of this passage is that Jesus gives us his own. Jesus offers himself. And so because he offers himself, he does not offer a self-help solution. That's the power of this passage. He could never be an accessory or a new program to add onto our life. Jesus does not come into our life. We come into his. Let me say that again. We don't add Jesus into our life to fix things. We get brought into his life. So this is why Jesus describes our life in him like eating bread. And I think maybe we forget how intimate our mouth is, how uh, personal it is. 
right? Think about what your mouth does. With your mouth, you kiss your spouse. You kiss your children. With your mouth, you, you express your anger. You uh, grimace, you frown, or your delight, you giggle, right? You grit your teeth. And eating, it, eating itself is a very intimate experience. I mean, think about what happens when you eat something foul, right? Something that's not right. Your whole body winds up because this thing has invaded your space, and you spit it out, and you try and scrape your tongue and gargle some water. Your whole body contorts because this thing has gotten into you. So with eating bread, it touches your lips. It gives off heat because it's fresh. You tear into it with your teeth. Your tongue absorbs and fills your brain with the flavor and the delight of the bread. Eating is also the thing that sustains you, right? So for all you paleo people here, you need to realize that bread is a picture of the whole scope of needs, right? Your whole dietary scope is emblematic in this bread. So Jesus is saying, in fact, your whole diet is represented in him. I mean, it's a wild thing that our bodies take material from the world and use it to give us strength to live on, that we regulate our hormones, right? Our sense of well-being, our brain function, our heart, right? Our ability to have fun are all maintained and regulated by what we put into our mouth. Eating is a pleasurable experience, too. Talk to anyone who's been on IV for a while, they, would, they, they like to eat food. I mean, the other thing is, like, you think about the movie Matrix with, you know, the, uh, what's his name, Neo gets into the other world, and all they have to eat is the grog, right, the little dish. It's like, has all their nutrients for the day, but it tastes like cardboard, right? God did not have to make such a variety of food. And he didn't have to make it taste good, but we get to eat steaks, people, okay? Like, this is God's kindness to us. Eating is a delight, and in, in the same way, Jesus says, he is our life. He's meant to be close to us as bread is close to you, as it invades your space. He's meant to fill us with delight, to capture our senses, to be received into the most intimate and sacred aspects of your life. His ever new life is meant to touch even those parts of our lives and stories we are terrified of even as much as it's meant to flavor the mundane parts of our life. His life, which makes all things new, is what enlivens us. It gives us hope in the face of death. In fact, Jesus, over and over in this passage, insists that if you receive him into yourself, just as you would chew a bread and swallow it and it goes into your body, if you would receive him like that, he guarantees that his life will raise you up on the last day that your body will be transformed because of the presence of his life in you here and now. And it makes perfect sense because if his life could thwart death and he puts it in you, he could do whatever he wants. And so we can have the life of hope even now before the grave. So the big takeaway here is that Jesus wants you to see that there can be no casual relationship with him. There's no such thing. If your life is receiving his flesh, the same flesh that was whipped and beaten and mocked and spit at and nailed and killed on the cross and is our life, 
and that his flesh will physically raise us on the last day, then there's no such thing as a casual and cool believing in him. That's like talking about enjoying a bread at a distance. It doesn't work. It's impossible. You must receive him and cling to him. Intimately, that is spiritually. That means the whole scope of your being is given over to him. That means that your heart cries out for him. You pant for him. Or you're even angry with him. And you go to him with your fear and your despair because here's the deal. Hot and cold with the Lord is much better than lukewarm because hot and cold means you care, means you have a relationship with him. So, Jesus says he is the bread of life. He is our life. So this means that, at least for some of us, we need to think practically about what it looks like to fill our life with his word and his presence. Plainly put, this means, this is one of the reasons why Christians have always had a devotional life. It's just bread and butter for Christians. That was an unintended pun. Paul actually commands us this in Colossians 3. He says, let the word of Christ, the word of Christ, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the word of Christ, that means that uh, Jesus' words, the things that he has said and done are supposed to color our whole mind. They're supposed to fill us, and richly so. That is to say that the aim is to be swept up into what he's doing. And that uh, we are to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. So that means that some of our time spent together is actually meant to be encouraging each other and talking about the things we're thinking about. What, what do you do in this kind of situation? And how, Let me encourage you, man. The Lord sees you. And then singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So that certainly means what we do here on Sunday mornings, but also means that your life is meant to be one of song singing to the Lord. That's Paul's picture of your life in Christ, that you be devoted to him, that your day would begin and end with worship to the Lord, and that you share that with each other, and you sing songs for each other's benefit. So just practically, Christians have done this in three ways, typically. Scriptural prayer, worship, and confession. And I say scriptural prayer because certainly I think you need to be in the scriptures. You need to have them in your mind. They need to be part of your life, part of your routine, your daily diet. But the point of reading the scriptures for Christians is not to become theology buffs. Unless you are called to become a teacher of God's word, your goal is not to master the text. Your goal is to pray those words to the Lord. You learn scriptures so you can know how to pray. That's the goal. And so now God's words fill your brain and your imagination more and more, and you are drawn to pray for him, with him. Worship is obvious as well, coming to God's house with his people, but also confession, meeting with your Christian friends to confess your sins, to receive God's grace, to be prayed for, to grow in deep friendship. These are just basic, basic parts of the Christian life. And I just encourage you, find a way to do those. You need to be creative, you need to be thoughtful, certainly, but find a way to make those part of your daily daily routine. Well, all of this is an exercise of faith, which actually brings us to our second point. That is, chewing on the bread of life in the Lord's Supper requires faith. Let me read verses 52 through 56 again. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, 
how can this man give us his flesh to eat? First off, that's a great question. We need to take that seriously. That's a good question. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds or chews on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever chews on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Jesus, in this passage... Uh, is actually not teaching explicitly about the Lord's Supper. It wouldn't make sense for him to do that in a synagogue where they don't know what he's talking about. But what is he doing? Jesus is teaching about the sacramental reality, the spiritual reality that makes sense of the Lord's Supper. What I mean is that uh, the spiritual reality that we say is happening here is explained for us in this passage. Without this passage, uh, we would have no theology of what is happening when we take the bread and the wine, right? Uh, if we, all we had was the other Gospels which give us the Lord's Supper, that we might be led to think that believing in Christ and receiving him is a purely cognitive exercise, that it's about uh, remembering and thinking about and profiting from ideas, and so we begin to think that baptism is just an expression of our faith and that the church is kind of a delivery system for knowledge and encouragement, and that the supper is an old tradition that, you know, it really helps remind us of the idea of atonement. This passage tells us that Jesus' words and the other Gospels are no mistake. That salvation that Christ has accomplished for us will touch and affect our body. Just as much as it's for the renewal of our body in all things. So this passage says that the incarnation is not just necessary for your salvation, but that Salvation touches your body. And that God would have us act our religion out in our bodies with actual rituals and acts. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that John's trying to convince us that we aren't Gnostics, okay? John 6 answers this question. How can we have sacraments in the first place? How is this even a good idea? Who came up with the idea? How could it be fitting and appropriate to receive bread as Jesus' body and wine as Jesus' blood? Here's the answer. So close and tangible as eating and drinking is the Christians feeding and believing on Christ. And it's so close that it must happen physically. Moreover, so intimate is the life-giving of the person of Christ that we must feed on him in our persons and in community. So there can be no cold contractual reception of eternal life. And because of that, we have to receive him into our bodies. It actually has to touch us. How else will we profit from eating bread and wine except receiving those as his body and blood through faith? And in fact, I think that actually the supper makes sense of this passage in a way that wouldn't make sense otherwise. In fact, uh, John Calvin, from whom we've learned most of our theology about the supper, says this passage is not about the supper. But the supper is the culmination. It's the climax of this passage. It makes sense of this. So I just want to take a moment and just do a little teaching on what the Lord's Supper is. What's happening in the Lord's Supper? We don't get a moment often to do extended teaching. So if it gets a little heady, stick with me. We will end the plane. Three things. In the Lord's Supper, there is the real presence of Christ. Secondly, the supper is a sign And thirdly, I just want to think about what it is to receive the supper, what we should do. 
So first, the real presence of Christ. Uh, Feeding on the body and blood of Christ means that he is really present as we take this bread and wine. And what I mean to say is that Jesus is not kidding when he says things like, take, eat, this is my body. He's not saying, hey, imagine this is like a body. Or this is a good teaching tool, like a parable. No. He says, actually, this is my body. And he does want us to remember his body being broken for us and have that cognitive experience, but he expects us to remember by actually partaking in it. Most of American Christianity has a view uh, that only the mind is the important thing. And so when we come to the supper, this is purely a cognitive exercise. We're just remembering what Jesus has done. And so the bread literally is food for thought. That's all it does. Here's the problem, though. Verse 54. Whoever chews on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Here's Matthew 26. Jesus says, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it all all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. He's not mincing words, but he also doesn't mean that the bread and the wine have had a magical transformation. They continue to be bread and wine. In fact, uh, the Roman Catholic Church has held that doctrine since about year 800. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a confusing one at the very least, but it's certainly not what Jesus means. What we mean and what we think the scriptures teach is that when we take the bread and the wine, what's happening is that heaven itself is open. And that the Holy Spirit is taking Jesus' body and blood and feeding you with them. Because he has chosen to use earthly elements that you could receive it in a tangible way. And so when we come and partake of this meal, the Spirit has actually decided to use these to feed us. And so it's almost as if heaven itself is open and we are dining with the Lord. And the Holy Spirit feeds us. And so... uh, This doesn't take away any of the mystery, but what I do want to say is that uh, these really are truly the body and and blood of Jesus. Calvin talks about it like this. He says all of this is like rain. The rain falls on the soil, and the soil absorbs it. The rain also falls on rocks, which do not absorb it, and it rolls off the rocks. But it's no less the rain for the rocks than it is for the soil. So he says, in fact, uh, the soil is like people who can come to the table with faith. And they can receive what's being given to them. But if you come to this table without faith, without believing in the Lord, the rain has still happened. The body and blood of Jesus are just as objectively offered to you, but you have failed to profit from them. Some might say when I say that Jesus is spiritually present in this, that you think I mean not really present. Let me just give one word of uh, advice here. If the Spirit is real, and in fact, if it's the Spirit through whom all things were made, through whom matter itself came into existence, and matter itself gains its significance because of what the Spirit is doing with it, then certainly the Lord teaches us that in this supper, He can feed us with His body and blood through these material objects as His Spirit deigns. So the supper is a sign. It's a sign. And that means that feeding on Christ requires believing and abiding in him. Look at verse 47 with me. 
Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And then verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. That is to say, have eternal life. So Jesus says, actually, believing and eating of the bread of heaven are the same thing. There's a direct connection. That is to say, that to really profit from offering himself here, we must receive him by faith. And you just got to think about this. Remember the crowd. Right? The crowd that's with him. They tasted the multiplied bread. They participated in the sign. Right? They tasted of a miracle, and yet they didn't profit an ounce from it. In fact, Jesus says to them that they saw him, and yet they did not believe. They show us that you can participate in a sign and yet not benefit an ounce from it. So look at verse 56. Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He's saying that through our abiding in him and his abiding in us, we are enabled to feed on the sacrament. Now think about this. Of course, of course you have to abide in him. Could you imagine that God would come every week and stoop down and feed you with the body of his son and give you a bite of eternal life through his spirit and you don't have to have him in you? You don't have to abide in him? The Lord's Supper teaches us what it means to be devoted to Christ, utter dependence, being sustained by him. And one picture of this is uh, what Augustine said. He called this a tangible word called the supper a tangible word, just as he compared it to preaching, in fact. He said, okay, uh, the preacher is speaking his own words, certainly, and objectively, God's word is going out. You all are hearing God's declaration. But actually, what doesn't matter is if it goes into your ear. What matters is if it goes into your ear, and by the Spirit, you can actually receive it by faith as coming from the hand of God himself. And so as we come to this table, we don't come to eat bread just with each other, we come to be fed by Christ himself. That he is the one who ministers himself to us at this table. So, just a few thoughts on how we should take the Lord's Supper. First, it's a sacred joy. Sacred joy. It's sacred because God himself is feeding us. I am receiving the body and blood of Jesus on my lips and in my body. This should cause us to tremble. This is a serious moment. This is a moment with tremendous gravity. In fact, for this reason, Westminster Larger Catechism encourages us in judging ourselves, sorrowing for sin, earnestly hungering and thirsting after Christ, feeding on him by faith, receiving his fullness and trusting in his merits. It's a serious moment. It's sacred. But... That gravity, that seriousness does not mean that we are joyless in our communion because that same section continues. Westminster encourages us in rejoicing in his love, giving thanks for his grace, in renewing our covenant with God and love to all the saints. And so the reason why this is a moment of gravitas, why this takes all our attention and uh, calls for our whole heart to be present is because of the tremendous joy that's on offer. Because Christ himself is on offer. And that's why we encourage you to greet each other and enjoy this time because God himself is here giving us a feast. But there's also a warning here. 
Listen, if Christ is objectively offered in this bread and wine, no matter who you are, Jesus is being offered to you, what does that mean for unbelievers who take this meal? What does that mean for you if you don't believe in Christ and you take this meal? Well, here's the great warning. If Christ intimately and seriously offers you himself and you come to enjoy his benefits and yet reject him, you need to see that you're spitting in his face. This is like accepting gifts from parents who you will refuse to talk to. Paul gives us this warning in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, because in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? And continuing on, he says, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that is to say, the things he just mentioned, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Paul says that if you come to the table and yet despise the church, or if you come and have no interest in discerning the Lord's body and receiving his body and blood, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. So I say this with all seriousness and in love for you all. If you don't know the Lord, this table is not for you. Please do not take this meal, because if you do, you will stir up God's anger against you. But what you do need to do is recognize that Jesus is for you. That he has already given his whole flesh for you. That he offers himself for your life. In fact, that if you seek Jesus and grapple with his words and begin to receive who he is and think on what life he offers you and take him seriously, then you can receive Jesus just as he lays hold of you. Be baptized and believe in the Lord, and then you'll be able to lay hold of him in the supper. Now, all of this is true, all this warning is true, because God's actually trying to protect this tremendous gift. This is a gift to us. And the gift of the Lord's Supper is for Christians who are weak and doubt. That's the wonderful gift of this. God knows how weak our faith is. He knows. He's a compassionate Father. He knows our frame. He knows we're often depressed. He knows how often we despair. He knows what encouragement we need. When I was depressed, I needed a tangible word being given to me that wouldn't get lost in the maze of my mind and depression. I needed something to come to me that I could not only hear, but experience. And this is exactly what the Lord has designed this meal for. Westminster says, this sacrament is appointed for the relief even of weak and doubting Christians. So we need to see there's nothing in the scriptures that says that you have to have all your sins figured out before you can come and eat this table. There's nothing in the scriptures that says you have to have strong enough faith or have not sinned in this last week or be of such a status to come and enjoy this. No. The scriptures are clear. This is Jesus offering himself to you for your sake because you need it. Nothing can stand in between us and the supper if we belong to the Lord because our faith is meant to be nourished in this table. So if you've received God's promises to you in baptism, and if you simply 
can trust that you belong to Christ, then you can receive God's ministry to you in this way, in this earthy way. God comes near to you in bread and wine to assure that you are his, that he is your life, and that, in fact, he intends to bring you great joy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these challenging and lovely words that you offer us yourself, that you are a bread of life. And so we pray that you would feed and sustain us. Lord, I pray for those here who don't know you, that they would uh, be spurred on to seek you and find that you are merciful. That they would draw near and find that you have been present all along. Lord, we pray that you would give us faith now, not only to receive your word, but to come and receive your body and blood. In Jesus' name, amen.